0: You know, I always think of when I was, um, like just visiting my last church, just as a potential member. Um, somebody asked me, he's like, are you an Armenian?" And I responded from the bottom of my heart. I was like, actually no, my family's Italian. Um, I had no idea what he was talking about. He was like, then you're an Armenian," And uh, I was totally confused, but he was right. welcome to the Ask Anything Podcast because some things are better said than read. My name is Peter Larufa, and today I'm gonna to be answering this question which was asked on my Instagram stories a few weeks ago. Do you agree with any of the five points of Calvinism? Why or why not? And so this definitely falls into the category of things that are better said than read, I think. Um, because when anybody asks me about uh, Calvinism, uh, the first thing that I ask them is to explain to me what they're referring to, because lots of times, in fact, I would say most times, when I hear what they're referring to, it's not what I believe. And so technically speaking, uh, with what we're about to get into, yes, I would be categorized as a five-point Calvinist. But there's a problem with the name in and of itself, just the, the name Calvinist. Uh, if you read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 12, you read this from the Apostle Paul. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And so Paul is expressing his concern for the church at Corinth because there were divisions among them, and people were showing a great allegiance to these human beings, and we know that the best of men are men at best. And so while I understand what the term Calvinist means, and why I could still technically refer to myself as a five-point Calvinist, I'm not crazy about the term because I don't want to declare my allegiance to any one human being because just like me they're a, they're flawed and I don't want to say that I line up with everything they've ever said or everything they've ever done and so Technically, I'm a five-point Calvinist, but I would encourage you to avoid the term. I actually don't like the term Calvinism. I know what it means and we're going to talk about it, but I refer I prefer to refer to them as the doctrines of God's sovereign grace or the doctrines of God's sovereign saving grace. Just referring to the fact that they these are doctrines of God's saving grace that we see throughout the scriptures, which really make more of him and less of us. And so what we're talking about is soteriology. Soteriology is the study of salvation, how Jesus's death on the cross secures salvation for people who would believe in him and, uh, answers questions like, is salvation by faith alone, or is it faith plus works? Are once saved, always saved, or can you lose your salvation? Is repentance necessary for salvation, or is it a fruit of salvation? Is baptismal regeneration something that we believe in or that we don't believe in? We don't believe in it. Uh, In other words, what does it mean to be born again, and how is that accomplished from what we read in the Scriptures. And soteriology, which is the study, like I said, of the doctrine of salvation, and Christology, the the doctrine of who, who Christ is, who Jesus Christ is, are two key areas that are really important for Christians to understand, because they're really what separates Christianity from... Other world religions, pagan religions, and cults, in that Jesus Christ secured salvation for those who would believe. And it's not up to us to do anything because when he said on the cross, It is finished, it really was. And he accomplished everything that needed to be accomplished. And so now let's talk a little bit about Calvinism and Arminianism. So, Calvinism is named after a a French theologian named John Calvin who lived in the earlier part of the 1500s. Arminianism is named after Arminius, I think his first name is... Jacobus or Jacobus, I'm not sure, who lived in the latter part of the 1500s, and they would disagree widely uh, as to how salvation is accomplished and what was really accomplished on the cross when Jesus Christ died for sinners. And so the five points of Calvinism can typically be summed up in an acrostic TULIP, you may be familiar with that, T-U-L-I-P, standing for total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints and so if you have your bibles or a bible app you're going to want to follow the bouncing bible verses because i'm going to be reading a lot to you from a lot of different scriptures and so total depravity is the belief that our sinful natures have infected and defected every part of our uh, of our of our life such that we're not as bad as we could be. We're not, everybody's as evil as they could be, but there's no area of our life that is unaffected by our sinful nature. And so therefore we are unable to choose that which is right, unable to choose to come to salvation, unable to believe in Jesus Christ for salvation unless God does a saving work in us. And we get that from verses such as 1 Corinthians. If you wanna go there with me, 1 Corinthians chapter two, uh, verse 14 says this, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are a folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually Discerned, and So me by myself, as I am naturally, I would not be able to discern spiritual things because they're foolishness to me and they're foolishness to those who are perishing. Now, Arminians would not believe in total depravity, but would believe in something called partial depravity, which would be more like saying that our natures are tainted by sin, but we still have the ability to come to Christ and to understand spiritual things. Of course, I would disagree with that based upon the text that I just read and other texts as well. The U stands for understanding unconditional election. An unconditional election could be explained this way, that God uh, in eternity past chose to save for himself a people and base that choice upon the good pleasure of his own free will. There's no condition. There's no reason why some people have been chosen by God and some people haven't. There, It's unconditional. But God chose to save for himself a people and did that according to his own good pleasure. And we can read about that In several places in Scripture, but I'm going to highlight one for you in Romans chapter 9. Perhaps that's the most popular uh, place in Scripture to look at when it comes to looking at the doctrine of unconditional election. Beginning in verse 10, Paul says this, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob, I have loved, but Esau, I hated. And so that's an example looking back into the Old Testament, looking back into the book of Genesis, how God chose in eternity past that he was going to put his favor upon Jacob. And he didn't do that based upon anything that they did or were going to do, but did that because that was just his choice to make because he's sovereign over all things. Uh, We go on to read this in Romans 9, verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy mercy. And so unconditional election shows the fact that, or highlights the fact that the scriptures show us that God chooses to show mercy to whom he shows mercy. It's not that they have met any condition. It's not that they have satisfied any prerequisite. It's just that God is gracious and kind, slow to anger and abounding in mercy, and chooses whom to set his love upon. Uh, Armenians would get, would believe in conditional elections. So you might, if you've ever studied this, refer hear the tunnel of time referred to, that God looked down the tunnel of time saw who was going to choose him and therefore set his love upon them and that's conditional election so it's god choosing to set his saving grace upon people based upon what they were going to do so therefore there's the condition which is an if then statement if god sees that you're going to choose him he sets his love upon you but i don't think the scriptures uphold that belief at all total depravity t unconditional election u limited atonement now this is by far the most hotly debated Uh, point of Calvinism, um, and I think part of it's because of the way it's, well, part of it's because of our own sinful natures, but the way it's worded is actually unhelpful. Limited atonement, which that doctrine believes that the atoning death of Jesus Christ accomplished or paid for the sins of those whom God has chosen to save. And so it's not that Jesus' power is limited. It's not that God's power is limited. It's not that his mercy is limited. God can do whatever he wants with whomever he wants, whenever he wants. But it's saying that Jesus died for those, whom would be uh, chosen to have their eyes open to the truth of the gospel. And we read about this, uh, it's the Christmas season, so let's look at uh, Matthew chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 21. So, of course, this is the angel talking to Joseph, saying that he should not put Mary away. Uh, She has not committed adultery. He's talking to her, and he says this in verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people— from their sins. And so the reason it's worded that way is because it would assume that if the angel is saying there's his people, then there's people who are also not his people. It's not saying all people. There's his people and people who are not his people. Uh, If we look in the Gospel of John chapter 10, uh, we read this. This is a great chapter um, to talk about these things. And so this is where Jesus is talking about and refers to himself as the good shepherd, right? And so if you look at verse 11, we read this. These are Jesus' words. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And just, I don't know much about shepherds, but shepherds had a flock that they protected, that they were willing to die for, that they were going to provide for, but it was their flock. It wasn't just that they loved sheep, they loved their sheep. If you skip down to verse 14, uh, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for." the sheep. And so there's another example where we're given this picture of a shepherd who knows his sheep. It's not just that he's a sheep freak, he loves his sheep. And therefore the atoning death that Jesus paid on the cross was paid in full for every sin for every one of Jesus's sheep. That's what limited atonement means. Or it's also worded definite atonement, meaning this atonement was a sure thing. It paid the way for Christ's people to have their sins paid and to have a relationship with him. Now, Arminians would believe not in limited atonement, but in unlimited atonement, and would believe that uh, Christ's death on the cross paid for the sins of everyone, but it only takes effect when they believe. But there's a problem with that belief on multiple levels. I just want to talk about that for a minute. Now, if Jesus Christ paid for the sins of everyone and then... I believe in Jesus and and put my faith in him for salvation. Therefore, my sins are paid for on the cross." But an Arminian would say, my sins were paid for on the cross because Jesus died for everybody. And therefore, for people who don't believe and then spend an eternity in hell, think about it. God's getting paid twice, right? He got paid through his son, and then he got paid through people's eternal suffering and death in uh, the lake of fire known as hell. And so therefore, that seems unjust. And so what a Calvinist would believe is that Jesus Christ paid for all of the sins of all of God's people and that everybody will pay for their sin either through Jesus Christ's atoning death on the cross or through their uh, payment for their sins in eternal death in hell. That's limited atonement, T-U-L-I-N. I stands for irresistible grace. And irresistible grace is referring to the fact that when God calls someone, when God is working in somebody's life and drawing them unto himself, they cannot resist it. That doesn't mean that all of a sudden they're like, oh, I don't know what's happening. But when God's doing a saving work in somebody's life and calls people unto himself, they can't resist it. They just go to Jesus. Now that might happen over time, that manifests itself in different ways, but whom God calls, those people come to Christ and we see this in verses uh, such as John chapter 6 which is another great uh, <clears throat> great chapter in the gospel of John to talk about these things uh, in verses such as verse 37 All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Do you hear the certainty in those words? All that the Father will give—so again, this overlaps with some previous points, right? That God has given Jesus people from the foundation of the world, from in eternity past, he has given Jesus people that were going to be his. And he says, all that the Father gives me, not might, not I hope, but will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Uh, a few verses later, verse 39, Jesus says this, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Skip down to verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And so it seems that the work of salvation, which is what you're seeing in these doctrines of grace, or what people call the five points of Calvinism, the work of salvation is a work of God from start to start to finish that's what these doctrines seek to highlight and so God's gracious calling upon his people is irresistible that's what we believe about irresistible grace Arminians would believe in resistible grace uh, that people have the ability to turn away from God even if God is working in their life so again it's really putting more of the choice or more of the uh, ownership more of the control on the person more than it is on the Lord T-U-L-I and then P stands for perseverance of the saints. And what that doctrine teaches is that those whom God has saved will persevere to the end. It's not perfection of the saints. We do not all of a sudden become perfect in this life. But those whom God has saved, those whom God has called, those whom God has set his love upon and have truly been born from above will persevere till the end. Uh, A great verse about this that I really like is in Philippians chapter 1 and verse six, but I'll actually start from verse three. Uh, Paul says, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, this is verse six, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day Jesus Christ. And so that's the Apostle Paul looking to the church at Philippi saying, I'm confident that if God started it, he's going to finish it. That this work, which is legit, this saving work that's at work in your life and saving people throughout Philippi and, and forming this church, I'm confident that he who began this, is going to complete it. Whereas um, Arminians would believe not in perseverance of the saints, but more in conditional salvation. Like you can lose your salvation. It kind of depends on how you're rolling and how you act. And so you could once be saved, but then maybe not be saved. Um, And it's not really, again, a work of God from start to finish, but it's an action that God has taken and then a choice that people make on their own. There's some great resources about uh, these things called uh, The Potter's Freedom, which is by Dr. James White. That's a classic that's been around for years and years, probably over 20 years now. Then there's another one called The Five Points of Calvinism, which is by David Steele, Lance Quinn, and somebody else. Uh, But you can find those on Amazon. Now, what else do I want to say about this? I want to offer a pastoral word when it comes to the doctrines of grace or the five points of Calvinism. First of all, when it comes to thinking through these things, calm down. Most people get really, really nervous about it as they're looking into these things, thinking this could totally rearrange everything that they've ever believed about Jesus, about evangelism, about salvation. I know that was my response, actually. When I first heard about these things, I was like, this turns everything on its head. I was very active in street evangelism. I really wanted to witness to unsaved co-workers at the time, and I felt like I had nothing to do now. It's like people are saying that all like like we're a bunch of robots. It's not saying we're a bunch of robots at all. No one has ever been dragged into the kingdom of heaven kicking and screaming. No one has ever gotten saved and be like, I don't know why I love Jesus right now. We're not. robots. God changes what we want. God works within our lives to change what we value, that we value Christ above all, before all. And God does a work in us from start to finish because our sinful natures would never choose to choose him on our own. And so I would calm down as you're looking into this. Now, let's say you're on the other side of it and you've looked into it and you're like, really excited about it because there's another there's what we call cage stage calvinism right when people get super excited because now they've realized that these doctrines are true and they're very excited about it i was also that guy when i should have been locked in a cage for about six months to a year because this became the most important thing for me in my entire life and i chose to tell everybody about this in some ways really offensively and i actually think to my shame i prioritized this more than the gospel which is not supposed to be the case um this is you know be excited about these things and always want to learn about the word of God and more the more you can learn about the word of God the better but calm down don't fear it going into it but don't get too excited that you become a monster coming out of it as you study these things if the Lord draws you to these same conclusions and so I would say calm down Uh, also I would say study the word for yourself. Um, it's helpful to maybe hear somebody talk about it like this, but really study the word for yourself and look at these things, look at the verses, uh, in their context and really understand what God is saying through his word. God wrote his word to be clear. That's what we believe about the the clarity of scripture, the perspicuity of the scriptures, that this is something that can be discerned by people who have the Holy Spirit. And if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit, and so that's you. Uh, I would say you should definitely be praying about these things. Ask God to open up your eyes to truths within his word that he wants you to know. And finally, I'll go back to something I said beforehand, never elevate this more than the gospel by which you have been saved. But you might say, if these things are true, why do I even bother share the gospel? If God's just going to save whom he's going to save, why am I going to bother sharing the gospel? And for that, I want you to take a look at this so here's a little illustration that i've used in student ministry that i've used when i've preached through uh romans chapter 9 before for our church and i'm using it for you here now lots of times people realize what god's word has to say about election and about salvation how it all happens and they're like how do i know who to share the gospel with how do i how, this changes everything it, it kind of doesn't. If it changes anything, it should empower you as an evangelist, empower you as somebody who wants to reach the lost, because you realize that all you need to do is share the gospel. God's gonna do a work inside of people's minds and hearts to bring them to him. You're just, you're just throwing seeds. You're just sowing seeds of the gospel in people's hearts. Where I realized that when I used to share the gospel before I came to the knowledge of the doctrines of saving grace, I realized I was owning that stuff, not in a an in intentional, like, cocky way, but I was thinking if somebody didn't come to Christ as I was sharing the gospel, I blame myself. Why would somebody choose an eternity in hell? It must have been the way that I shared the gospel. I, was, I wasn't winsome. I was too long-winded. I was too bold. I was too whatever. And now I realize that God works in people's lives and hearts to respond to the gospel, and all I need to do is preach. And so here before you, you have four light bulbs, right? And they're all out. And you're like, well, they must all be burnt out. Well, none of us can see what's on the inside of the light bulb. Maybe they're burnt out and you would see like the filament wiring is not connected, but maybe they just need to be screwed in. Do you ever think of that? And you're like, well, how do I know what to do? Here's the thing. You don't know what to do, but do you know what God wants you to do? He just wants you to twist every bulb. Leave what goes on on the inside to Him. Twist every bulb to the glory of God, and share the gospel with whomever the Lord brings across your path. And so we look to God to do the work on the inside of people. That's not up to us to do. But when it comes to evangelism, twist the bulb, man. Twist those bulbs to the glory of God. Share the gospel knowing for sure that on the inside of people, God has has, has chosen to work within people's lives and all you need to do is share the gospel and pray that God would do a saving work in people's lives. I want to close with reading uh, this scripture from the book of Titus. got to reach around these bulbs here because I think this is probably one of the most... um, Nope, I'm in the wrong chapter. Titus 3, because I think this really sums it up, and this is where I want to leave us today. Uh, Titus 3, beginning in verse 4. But when the goodness And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. It's my hope and prayer that this provided some uh, clarity for you, maybe some provoking thought for you to search the scriptures on your own and really dig deep to understand what Christ does in saving people like you and like me and that we would keep the gospel front and center as the most important thing in our minds now and forever.